1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here with Kathy Stewart, Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Davis, to talk about her new book, Suicide by Proxy in Early Modern Germany, Crime, Sin, and Salvation. Out this year, that's 2023, with the Palgrave Press. Hello, Kathy. Welcome to the program. Hi, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you've joined me. Hey, how are you? How's California? Rainy. Delightedly.
0: <laughs> but yeah. Unexpectedly.
1: Yeah, that it doesn't happen enough. You're closing in on the end of your semester-ish? Yes. Three more weeks. <sighs> oh, brilliant. You know, it's always so exciting when they start and so exciting when they end. Yes, definitely. Uh <laughs> okay so um you're in the department of history but you also are in the De- department of german or have some connections to german studies i'm an affiliate
0: uh, with it and- you know because i do german history so but i'm not in their department
1: i'm in the department of history it's good to be around other historians yeah oh. yeah so um let's just start like very basically, how did you come to write this book? How did you move from, um, I mean, executioners, we talk about executioners in your first book, but how did you come to write this one?
0: Well, in that first book, um, there's that chapter about executioner medical practice. And I was trying, in that book, I was trying to resolve the paradox of how is it possible that to have a drink with the executioner will completely destroy your honor and result in your social death. But it's not a problem for you to go to the executioner's house and receive medical care uh, and be touched by him in that context. So I was trying to resolve, you know, why ritual pollution applied in this one context, but not in the other. Um, And so I made the argument there that um, contagious dishonor, that was the topic of the first book, um, was a secular construct but that the executioner required acquired a kind of an aura um, of the sacred when he was handling the dead the bodies of the poor sinners that he dispatched because the poor sinner in the process of the execution ritual transformed from a, a horrific malefactor into a Repentant poor sinner and this kind of transformation made the condemned criminal I argue into a kind of ersatz saint that provided a raw materials that would be far more accessible to a medical practitioner than the body parts of a real saint Because you have a you know extensive supply of dead bodies of executed criminals and so the, uh, the So I made the argument that we have a touch of the sacred here Uh, That the body of the executed criminal becomes sacred and by extension the executioner also uh, And that in this religious context the ritual pollution that I wrote about In the secular context did not apply and so to explain this transformation How does the executed criminal transform from this horrific, you know monstrous figure to the uh, You know this lamb the sacrificial lamb on the scaffold Um, I embedded that in the theology surrounding executions and that's when I first came across these cases and you can see that You know a similar logic that my perpetrators and who are committing suicide by proxy obviously also feel uh, That they are being transformed into this kind of erzat saint in the process of the execution that they want to undergo So that's how that
1: happened Okay. That was a long, convoluted answer. That was a great answer. I mean, because it it kind of uh, presages a lot of the really thorny questions. I mean, like thorny issues, but like coming, one of the things that I really kind of at the end of this, I want us to be able to understand how this makes sense. And you've just alluded to all of these really intricate kind of societal situations mm-hmm. that are, these social situations that are re- enhanced and kind of, you know, deeply embedded with a religious context that makes mm-hmm. this whole process make sense mm-hmm. Um to, in, in, which does not make sense to a modern, right to exactly. modern audience at all. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. So let's start, you know, the, with the title of the book, this phrase uh suicide by proxy, which you coined, but It it describes a practice that is very clear, but with which I was not in any way familiar before this book, right? Right? Mm -hmm. So tell us, what is that? What's suicide by proxy? Okay. So suicide by proxy
0: is when a suicidal person wants to find a way to exit this life without incurring uh, eternal damnation. Um, which all Christian denominations agree that, uh, you know, ultimately, if you commit direct suicide, if you do suicide yourself, you're going to end up um, in, in hell. And here were these people in desperate straits, uh, you know, desiring a death, and they had no out. So the solution that they found was to tap into the religious potential of public execution, so, they would commit a capital felony and then immediately run to the authorities and say, voila, I, I just did this. Um, and then the authorities would be compelled to prosecute them, even though the authorities quickly became aware that they were being manipulated, that these people had committed a capital felony for no other purpose than to coerce their own execution. But the authorities were compelled to execute because they were acting under the, the constraints of divine law that made it obligatory to uh, execute offenders for certain crimes, most notably for murder, blood for blood, right? <laughs> um, but also for uh, blasphemy, um, also for best- bestiality. So there are certain crimes where execution is necessary and the authorities can't get out of it, even though they know they're being manipulated, until uh, they finally, in the 1760s, there are attempts made, uh, enough political will and enough secularization within criminal justice has happened by the 1760s that the authorities try to extricate themselves out of that box they're in. Oh, and then I should say that the choice of crime, Mm -hmm. not just any crime that they commit, uh, but most visibly they commit child murder because the uh, logic there is that if you murder a child uh, before it reaches the age of reason, so after baptism, before the age of reason, the child is in a state of innocence and therefore... You're actually doing the child a favor if you murder it. And uh, there's actually the argument, oh, if it had lived, it might have sinned at a later age and gone to and been damned. But you killed it in time. So, uh, you know, you are actually dispatching the child to heaven. And then you, you, (laughs) you undergo the process of repentance and then you will rejoin that child in heaven later. Um, so, so that is the most visible form, but there were also other forms of suicide by proxy, notably, uh, and this is very much understudied in my opinion, self-accusations of witchcraft, um, self-accusations of of witchcraft are undoubtedly a form of suicide by proxy, Mm -hmm. as were self-accusations of bestiality by men, um, and, um, That worked for a while, but at a certain point, uh, judicial skepticism begins to set in and authorities become less persuaded by the logic of the cremen acceptum. Mm -hmm. And so higher standards of proof and the necessity of actually material evidence means that these earlier forms of suicide by proxy through... Witchcraft self accusations or bestiality self accusations no longer work. So now you have to present the authorities with evidence, and they do so in the form of the dead body of the child they murdered, or alternatively, uh, in the Viennese context, by desecrating a host or demolishing a crucifix.
1: Right. Wow, okay, yeah. Um, so interesting so, oh yeah, I mean reminded that like there is, sometimes when we're talking about the early modern period, it, I've, I see such a connection, right and it, it, it there is so many close, uh ties with our modern world and then sometimes i feel like i'm studying i could be on mars and this is a little actually
0: i talk about robert darnton and the great cat massacre in there when he says that when we're trying to understand something uh that's really really alien about another culture we should dig in on specifically that point um which is what i try to do
1: (laughs) what is it that like yeah we've got something now we can really get at this um so just, I think it's probably helpful to be really clear on what, on the doctrinal position on suicide, um, mm-hmm.
0: okay. right.
1: so why That's this true. is so serious.
0: Right. So um, it was actually St. Augustine that argued that um, that uh, um, suicide is akin to murder, that then it is self-murder. Uh, and it became a doctrine, actually, that suicide is worse than murder because if you murder someone else you are only killing their body but if you commit suicide you are killing your body and uh destroying your soul so in that sense suicide is a more heinous crime uh than murder um so that and that uh was maintained through all of the confessions with a little bit of nuance um on the part of martin luther so Uh, Your audience probably knows that there were rituals of desecration widely practiced in early modern Europe regarding the disposal of the uh, bodies of suicides Mm -hmm. and uh, such as, you know, uh, digging under the threshold of a house and and dragging the body out through the threshold or lowering the body out of a window of a house or, um, you know, burying it at a crossroads. Also, that the the soul of the suicide could not return as a malicious revenant. So there are all all these apotropaic measures, which are practiced really throughout Europe, and are practiced regardless of confession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Martin Luther, um, as part of the uh, Protestant, the Lutheran salvation process, believed that um, people had to. Had to go through this kind of salutary sorrow and 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 really almost despair in the process of their Receiving grace because they have to realize that that they themselves are not contributing at all uh, To their salvation Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is a higher tolerance for this type of melancholy state uh, Among Protestants than there is among Catholics. And so Martin Luther uh, recognized that there's actually a, a moment of danger in at this moment in, in the re- reception of grace where the person could actually fall into despair. And this vulnerability makes Martin Luther actually have some level of sympathy towards people who commit suicide. And he makes this remarkable analogy that um, describes them as someone who was killed in the woods by a highwayman uh, and the highwayman being Satan because they're not entirely willing in that. So he doesn't make an absolute statement that um, suicides are damned. But at the same time, he says, I want to maintain all of these rights of desecration because they have a deterrent effect. So the public should not be told that suicides don't necessarily go, um, go to hell. So, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, um, yeah. Yeah, there's a general consensus then on the popular level and even, you know, there I would say despite this kind of nuance there, there is a consensus um that uh suicides go to hell.
1: Yeah, and like do not pass go immediately either and and no no there you can't you can't get your way through it. Like even uh believing, you know, even people whose confession involves purgatory, that suicide yes. doesn't get you there. It, this it won't,
0: it won't help. Well, no. because you can only in purgatory you only deal with venial
1: sins right so is, you
0: do a mortal sin you're out
1: you're, you're, you're out, out. Yeah. yeah and so the and you note know, right that there's um there's no way to really extricate these social conventions and what we might consider almost um you know superstitions really with right. religious belief exactly
0: they, yeah and i mean um so on the popular level, there's a lot of disconnect. Um, think about the logic of suicide by proxy being performed by Lutherans who say, I want to pay for my sins on the scaffold, which of course is completely doctrinally wrong. For, and they are then so instructed by the pastors who prepare them for their execution. But I do find it remarkable that two centuries after Luther, uh, Lutherans who are Bible-reading and literate and, and church-attending, etc., they still haven't grasped the concept of salvation by grace
1: alone. That's remarkable. Yeah, that is actually a lot. Well, remarkable. No, no. Yeah. Um, so why did you choose... You're, you saw you're studying the Holy Roman Empire. Why did you choose this place?
0: Oh, well, um, I love it.
1: Yeah, um, it's what
0: I do. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm a historian of Germany. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know if historians of France or England um, or Italy will necessarily agree with me, but uh, in, I find that working in German archives on criminal justice history is particularly fruitful because unlike, let's say, France, which has is much more centralized, um, a lot more... Uh, uh, amazing uh, primary sources have been preserved in a lot of these backwater archives. Uh, for example, uh, look at the city of Augsburg, compare it to, uh, for example, Bavaria, where in the 19th century the state of Bavaria um, culled so many of their uh, early modern uh, criminal records, because you know these 19th century people just weren't interested in that. Yeah. Uh, but Good for me that um, Augsburg, the archive, was so disorganized, even though it already had been incorporated into the state of Bavaria, that they couldn't call because they couldn't find it. Um, which means that the um, archive in Augsburg is one of the richest criminal archives in Germany, if not in Europe. Um, so that was fantastic. And then if you go to you know, out of the way places like private um, mm. noble archives, For example, I went to the Harburg, which is uh, near Augsburg, run by uh, Oettingen-Wallershnein, a noble family, um, and and you find things there. I went to a lot of monastery archives. So simply because of the multitude of states within the Holy Roman Empire, you have the luck of the draw that that you can find certain states um, with a very rich archival base, which you... I think maybe French historians will protest this, but I think it's, it's hard to find an equivalent. And then certainly in the English context, I think it is impossible to find. And maybe I, again, I might hear howls of protest, but I think it's impossible to find um, criminal sources, archival sources and trial records in the detail that I was able to find for Germany, simply because. They have the trial by jury and they don't have the inquisitorial justice system as we have in the continent, which produces these, you know, very, very voluminous trial records, as well as the whole concilia literature.
1: Because you have these really detailed criminal records, but then you also you have a a body of another kind of a surprisingly broad body of source material. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. I turned over every leaf, I can say.
1: <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Um, I think also I'm kind of wondering how much this allows you to do things like compare confessions, right? You're, I mean, you're, uh, exactly. you have, kind of, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, and so what are you seeing? Are there considerable differences in the way that they're discussed between Catholics and Protestants? Yes. Yeah. So
0: first off. For, you know, any early modern German historian, the question of confession is central. And in this book, I was actually arguing against a monograph by Tige Kruk, who in 2012 published a a book on suicide by proxy in Denmark, and intriguingly also talks about Hamburg, which is one of the case studies in my book. And, uh, Tiga Kolk argues as his title implies, a Lutheran plague, um, murdering to die in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And this, um, is a result specifically of elements of, uh, the Lutheran, of Lutheran doctrine. And he argues that the soteriology of, um, of Catholicism and Calvinism would not be hospitable to, um. To the practice of suicide by proxy and he suggests for catholics that uh, the the doctrine of purgatory in particular would um, mean that suicide by proxy does not make sense in the catholic context i argue completely the opposite namely that the doctrine of purgatory actually offers uh, an incredibly optimistic uh, assessment to uh, people who commit suicide by proxy if they do it right um so first off i can i can prove because my book contains these two case studies of lutheran hamburg and uh, baroque vienna so i can show how the practice plays out in these different confessional contexts and i argue that um, suicide by proxy is most definitely not the outgrowth of the teaching of any specific confession, but rather the kind of faithful interlocking of governmental practices by confessional states with the state church, the particular state church that they have happen to have. So, Catholic in the case in the case of Austria or Lutheran in, ca- in the case of Hamburg. But that this dynamic interlocking of uh, the way confessional states the ideology of governance and the way they exercise power produces the practice of suicide by proxy in both contexts Uh, so in that sense i argue that suicide by proxy is a very malleable practice and that the perpetrators adapt to different circumstances which we can maybe talk about how in Vienna they changed their tactics over time to, to, to uh, respond to changing legal landscapes. So I thought the adaptation of perpetrators to changing governmental policy is quite remarkable. So, but to stay on the point of confession, um, so yes, they speak very differently about it. And notably take Tiga points out correctly that uh there are not that many there are very few execution sermons by catholics that deal with the problematic of the crime so they keep it zip they keep it on the down low they just don't talk about that and from that Tige Koch deduces that Catholics were not interested and that um, That that uh, the Catholic clergy was not particularly invested in the salvation of condemned criminals I argue that nothing could be further from the truth and that actually what explains the paucity of these type of sermons by Catholics uh, is first Catholics have to operate underneath the seal of confession so they can't spill the beans in a similar way as Lutheran authors do. And then secondly, they have to be very, very careful to not inc- incur the problem of irregularity. Uh, the canon law impediment of irregularity, which holds that anyone even peripherally involved in, um, in, in, it in a legal process that produces a punishment of execution or bloody punishment to the body, such as amputation, that they become irregular and thus ineligible for holy orders. Or if they already are clergy, then they lose their ability. They become irregular and lose their ability to perform the sacraments. So the Catholic clergy is really very, very, very careful to insulate themselves. Uh, from this type of contagion really um to the point that they not only keep their hands clean but actually obstruct justice uh, as I describe um, I think it's in chapter I forgot the the, the last chapter before the conclusion uh... yeah. no actually I' forget it i I, I discuss it in chapter two <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, so um but I think that that is, A pretty unknown aspect in criminal justice history which uh, there should be a book on irregularity alone in Mm -hmm. the context of uh, criminal justice for Catholics Um, but then there's another problem so the Lutherans they when they give an execution sermon they can this gives the uh, pastors the chance to expound upon and instruct their parishioners on The doctrine of salvation by grace alone so they can point out the error the doctrinal error that's being committed by people who are doing suicide by proxy but the Catholics can actually not point out an error because the fundamental idea that Catholic perpetrators want to uh, realize is that they would um, they would uh, they, they would expiate their sins on the scaffold and have a kind of a purgatory here so ultimately suicide by proxy offers the possibility to uh, very much shorten your time in purgatory or if you do it right i mean if you are virtuoso in your repentance and you suffer pain and you embrace your pain you have the possibility to skip purgatory altogether which is you know a very rare possibility for Catholics, right? Um, So you could enter heaven immediately like Dismas did, the apocryphal um, good thief um, named so um, to the right of Christ, to whom Christ said, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Mm -hmm. So that's quite remarkable. Um, And and so in that sense, suicide by proxy completely works for Catholics, but um, you don't have these very overt Uh, Funeral sermons as you have in the Protestant context. What you then have to do is go dig around in the archival sources and furthermore, I Think that there is a greater reticence also in other bodies of source materials uh, to talk about both uh, about suicide suicidal ideation and melancholy and depression they keep this on the down-low much more than uh, Protestant writers do. And here, um, you you probably know Lyndall Roper's book Witch Craze. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she talks about uh, deep hostility um, in early modern culture to feelings of of depression. Uh, that this is highly stigmatized. This is something that you you know uh, hates you because of its proximity to to Satan. I think that. The hostility and discomfort with talking about feelings of depression and melancholy is more profound among Catholics. Common people, and, uh, and among common people, I have that example. I don't know if you saw that about this uh, one woman, Eva Uh She's the woman who, um, you know, before she throws a child over a cliff into a raging river. For months and months and months she had been running around to her husband and saying that she wanted to be out of this world She was no use to anyone in this world. She she just couldn't make sense of her new life. She was a newlywed Uh, She couldn't adapt to her new role. She spoke to her mother her mother-in-law her brother her brother-in-law she's telling everybody for months about her state of despair and then once she commits the murder and everybody around her is Interrogated, uh, she, uh, she uh, the, the witnesses say, "Oh, we never saw any sign of melancholy in her." Right, so that's a deliberate sweeping <laughs> of under the rug. Um, and there are other cases where someone is obviously committing suicide by proxy, mm-hmm. but the interrogator even hesitates to press the perpetrator to the point that you really get to the motive. I have that one remarkable case of this peasant who um, in, in uh, Austria, in Upper Austria, he's a subject of the Benedictine monastery of Kremsmünster, and uh, he has this little nine-year-old boy whom he grooms for sacrifice by taking him on a private procession, having the boy carry a crucifix while they walk to church and then uh, give confession and, 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 and receive the Eucharist, and then the next day he drowns that boy, um, and then when interrogated about the motive, he only says, "Well, it came to me. I had to do it. I was compelled to do it." And the interrogator doesn't press him to get to the ultimate suicidal motive. And I see, I see that as mm-hmm. a kind of a reticence um, on among Catholics to speak about this topic. So that accounts. That was a long answer to your question of how lutherans and catholics speak about
1: this differently um so then if we if it's not an issue of protestantism and catholicism that's not because this is um where does it come from because right this is something well actually this maybe is my question is this something that's present through the medieval period and the late no. antique period right no, this not. is not this is not an archival. A mystery, like missing. This does not exist, and then there, this comes to the fore. It's a novel crime. Okay, Uh, so why, why are we getting this? Yeah. Okay. So,
0: um, the earliest case that I found uh, was a case from 1580 in Nuremberg, and I want to give a shout out to Joel Harrington who provided me with a types with a, a transcript of that particular that and one other Nuremberg case so um the earliest 1580 and i make the argument that you need certain preconditions need to be met before a suicide by proxy even makes sense and the most crucial of these is uh, the sacralization of public execution which is a early modern phenomenon uh, in the Middle Ages condemned criminals were even often de- denied the sacrament. So this entire uh, ritualization and framing of executions uh, with, with this massive extravagant religious ritual that you get in the early modern period did not exist in uh, the Middle Ages. And then towards in, in the very late Middle Ages, so in, the, in the 15th century, um, uh, we see some beginnings where certain states uh, begin at the prodding of of the church, um, begin to offer the Eucharist and and some pastoral care to condemned criminals. And that's kind of the beginning. Um, But in my case in Hamburg, for example, that doesn't actually happen um, until 1529, uh, when Bugenhagen introduces the lutheran reformation in hamburg but again this does not have to do with lutheranism Um, it just coincides with this uh, reform and in general we can say that um, in the early 16th century we i have that image by urs graf um, this remarkable uh, image in there of uh, 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 an execution uh, scene where there's the execution site with bodies and decomposition but there's the executioner um ready who has is, is ready to strike a kneeling poor sinner and then um they are both looking upon the side of the scaffold where you see these bodies in various states of de- decomposition on the gallows or broken on the wheel and then you see though the soul of the executed criminal is exiting in the form of a little baby And in one case, you have a resplendent little shiny baby, beautiful, going into the arms of a waiting angel. And then in the other case, you have a bawling brat who is being dragged away by a demon. And so as you look at that image, um, this is the moment imminently before the execution. And then you, the viewer, as well as, you know, the poor sinner and the executioner will wonder, you know, which fate awaits this condemned criminal so in other words the theology uh, of of um, and I don't know if we should well yeah let's just say that the theology of um, th- that this moment of execution determines and and how you do it and if you do it right determines your ultimate fate that's already there uh, as we see that image by it which dates from 1512 but it really receives i would say you know the broader implementation um you know around the middle of the 16th century and that makes sense because um around the middle of the 16th century is when we kind of date the processes of confessionalization and social disciplining really taking off in the moral competition between um states of opposing confession and this drive towards moral purity within confessional states that's when this really takes off um and therefore more people get executed so or or no let me rephrase that that um more women get executed because if you compare execution rates um from the medieval period And then compare what happens by the 1580s and then through the 17th and first half of the 18th century, and you look at gender ratios of executed criminals, you have a vanishingly small, a vanishingly small number of women who are executed in the medieval period, perhaps around 2%. Mm -hmm. But then as morals policing becomes implemented, um, you know, from the mid 16th century onward with greater rigor. You have these rising rates of neonicide, of classic infanticide. So, infanticidal mothers are executed. Mm-hmm. This is contemporaneous with the European witch hunt. So, you have uh, witches being executed. And then uh, we shouldn't as- underestimate that even the criminalization of lesser crimes, uh, such as fornication and prostitution, which at from you know they are not capital offenses, mm-hmm. however. If you get prosecuted for that, you can be set on a trajectory for execution very rapidly. Let's say you are uh, uh, prosecuted for prostitution and then you are banished. And then what are you going to do? You're going to come back. Mm-hmm. But every time you're banished, of course, you swear this oath of Uafide, which is the oath in the, of related to banishment, that you will not come back. But then the prostitute comes back because where she's where is she going to go? And then she comes back, and then the second time she's arrested, she's flogged and banished, and she mm-hmm. swears the oath of warfare again, and then she comes back. And but by, by the time this happens three times, she's broken an oath, committed perjury, which is a capital offense and also a crime against God, um, like the other crimes we're talking about. And so then um, then she will be executed. Uh, So we see uh, an enormous increase in women on the scaffold, but then we shouldn't forget that we're also seeing an enormous increase in the number of women uh, subjected to public punishments to the body, notably uh, these prostitutes who are regularly being flogged and escorted by the executioner to the border of the territory. So the greater prominence of women for all offenses um, contributes to... You know, uh, the the practice of suicide by proxy. Mm-hmm.
1: So we get this position where it becomes it's clear now that execution can get you to heaven, or at least absolutely, purgatory. it's the express elevator. The express elevator. We've got women who are being subject to ever stricter control, like and you know, kind of like morally and this this very strict and in effective moral policing. Yes and um and then um social stigma around melancholy so so then the idea of you know end, ending your time here on earth in a way that can make sure you get to the good to the good place uh-huh all right this makes some this makes some sense right all right um <laughs> the other like one last thing is what's the relationship between suicide by proxy and witchcraft ah um okay so um
0: in my view self many self accusations of witchcraft
1: mm-hmm.
0: are probably or, or uh, you know i haven't looked at, i have a number of cases that i discuss in the book uh where i have these women uh, uh c- confusing that uh, c- accusing themselves of witchcraft which are clearly um suicide by proxy cases i think um if A research on the witch hunt were to focus in a concentrated manner on the issue of self-accusations we would find a whole lot more cases of suicide by proxy so in that sense it has something to do with witchcraft in the in the other sense um even because i make this paradoxical argument that suicide by proxy in its most visible form of child murder or host desecration is actually a result of secularization within uh, an early stage of secularization within criminal justice as elites become more skeptical about witchcraft right so so um you've got this level of secularization but that it's not like elites are obviously not believing in satan anymore Um, Or even the reality of witchcraft, but they are doubting their uh, ability to to prove it in a reliable way But then of course going on, you know into the very late 17th century and the early 18th century um, Courts really are disbelieving uh, are really not uh, convinced by the witchcraft narrative at all, but this does not Impact people on the lower social level who continue to believe uh, Very very much in the reality of satan and a lot of my perpetrators Uh if they had confessed what they confessed to uh, 50 or 100 years earlier, they would have been prosecuted for witchcraft. So a number of the child murderers are Goaded into doing it by satan who is some in some cases even visibly present for them, right? Um, what's different is they're not having sex with Satan, um, but you know, so that's not, that's different but uh, in some cases I have some child murderers who previously had accused themselves of witchcraft but then that didn't work and they fascinatingly make a learning process that it doesn't work to accuse yourself of witchcraft so then when they murder a child and people say, oh you said Satan was there uh, aren't you a witch then they deny it Even the, though the same person had previously accused herself of witchcraft because they are aware that Accusing themselves of witchcraft makes the success of, of their suicide by proxy less likely they are more Likely to receive an insanity defense against their will in these later cases if they throw witchcraft into the mix um so yeah
1: so and when you mentioned earlier um there are these adaptation tactics is this yeah, what you're talking about that's yeah what i'm
0: talking about um, my an amazing adaptation so um should i talk about the whole host desecration thing and in, in yeah vienna? let's let's absolutely why not okay <laughs> yeah so, so that's remarkable so um in vienna In the late 17th and first three decades of the 18th century, the most common form of suicide by proxy was not child murder, but rather it was demolishing a crucifix or it was desecrating the host. And that's pretty amazing when you consider the religious context of the Pietas Austriaca uh, at, at this time. The, the the famed piety of the house of Austria, which is, you know, totally over the top, mm-hmm. um, with these you know extraordinary extraordinary manifestations and performances of piety by the housebooks, and most notable for their dynasty is their adoration of the Eucharist, which is at the center of, of all of their you know Baroque panegyrics that that describe the housebooks, and so. Um, Of course, as the Eucharist becomes so central to, um, of course, all of counter-reformation, Catholic piety, but to the house books and and in the Viennese context in particular, there are all of these narratives floating around about classic host desecrators, which would be uh, Jews, host desecration uh, uh, legends associated with Jews and witches. And the Jewish host desecration shrines are kind of all around there, right? Pretty nearby of Vienna. And there are these holy blood shrines and so forth. And hundreds of thousands of people go to holy blood shrines where they learn the story of of uh, Jewish host desecration. And then they come home with little, little, um, little teeny little engravings showing the desecrated host and, and the process of the desecration by the Jews. So the lore of, Jewish host desecration, even as these cases happened in the 1300s, are absolutely current in the 18th century. And so I argue that this is true um, for host desecration cases, as it is for child murder, that uh, blood libel legends, as well as Jewish host desecration legends, feed into the cultural stew that um, provide a kind of a template and a model for Christian perpetrators. Mm-hmm. So, um, what you then have happening in, um, in Vienna and uh, is that y- you have people busting up crucifixes in the most extraordinary manner. Uh, even biting the crucifix or even biting through the crucifix and then throwing it to the ground and jumping it, jumping on it, kicking it, even demolishing it with a hatchet. Um, and so all of this is happening and you're having people tear up the host. You're having classically people pierce the host with needles, which is directly out of Jewish host desecration legends, right? But all of these are Catholics, right? Mm-hmm. Um and um, so you have the people doing all of this, and this is happening in in the city at large. But it's also happening. There's a particular outbreak in the Viennese House of Correction, um, and I find it an unbelievable, strange, uh, uh, historical coincidence or, or bizarre, ironic twist that these many post-desecrations and crucifix demolitions happen in buildings that were vacated by Jews in 1670 with the expulsion of Jews uh, by the Habsburgs and then that former Jewish quarter is renamed Leopoldstadt after Emperor Leopold and then the house of correction is built there and then you have all these Catholic perpetrators stashed in these houses previously owned by Jews And, of course, the narrative about the Jewish expulsion was that they had done all sorts of blasphemies. So we have these made-up blasphemies pre-1670, and then we have in the same location, in buildings occupied by Jews, Christians performing real real blasphemies and real host desecrations. To me, that's an absolutely amazing historical irony. Um, But I should also mention, again, to the point of uh, confessional issues, that just as this amazing outbreak is happening in the Viennese House of Corrections, contemporaneously there is an outbreak happening in the Hamburg House of Correction. So the institutional setting of House of Correction are incubators of suicide by proxy, which I think uh, supports my mm-hmm. argument that it's not about confession, but rather about disciplinary techniques, which are very similar in the Lutheran and the Catholic institution that produces this thing. And so you've got these people doing this, uh, and then you have them doing it in the House of Correction. Then they have extraordinary public extravagant executions. You have the publication of this to the broader Catholic audience within the city. We actually, there's no way to know where the practice originated. Did it originate in the city at large? Or in the house of correction, but it is very clear that these cases seed one another and that you have that Imitation cases and then the authorities react like they always react which is to uh, impose ever more extraordinary extravagant uh, Rituals of retribution so simple, you know beheading isn't enough So now you have to because all of these cases I use the word blasphemy But all of these cases are um, physical blasphemy. uh, Blasphemia realis. So then, as executions become exacerbated to increase deterrence, uh, what they do is they amputate the offending member, which means if it had been verbal blasphemy, they would have amputated the tongue. But verbal blasphemy is a more Protestant thing, right? But then if they demolish something, they're using their hand. So the execution then involves amputating the hand moments before the beheading, right? You, off, you amputate the offending member, but then that's not enough. You know, you have to ramp it up some more. So you're going to flog them for three days in a row, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't work. And in fact, um, the more extravagant the penalties become, the more these cases proliferate. And so, and we find the same phenomenon, Mm -hmm. by the way, with the child murders, because that's what early modern authorities do. They have only one, they're one note band. They amplify the penalties uh, as deterrence. And it doesn't work because these perpetrators desire and long for not only their death, but their bodily annihilation. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my perpetrators, a child murderess, when she turns herself in, she said that she desired to be ripped apart by claws or boiled in hot oil. Um, so in other words, they really want their bodily annihilation, right? Right. So so then the, the authorities actually make an extraordinary learning. There's a learning curve on by the authorities, which I find remarkable. Because after this has been going on for, for like from... The late from the 1690s through about 1715 and all of these exacerbated penalties are really not doing the trick then the the um, government consults with the uh, judicial faculty of the university of vienna and the theological faculty and they come up with for them now a loophole a theological judicial loophole that allows them to escape the divine command to execute blasphemers because they then make the argument that people who are demolishing the crucifix simply in order to be executed that their intent was not to commit blasphemy mm-hmm. remember the criminal intent is the crucial element of the corpus delicti so the blaspheme the blasphemy was then merely incidental to their true intent which was to commit suicide by proxy And this allows the authorities then to deviate uh, from the traditional practice of executing these people. And then they impose uh, instead uh, life imprisonment with public floggings every six months for these perpetrators. That takes about 10 years for the public to learn this, right? Mm -hmm. There's a learning curve now on the part of the public that suicidal iconoclasm no longer works. And then the public perpetrators adapt their tactics, and now they switch. And this is when you have a rise of suicidal child murder after about 1730. So I find that adaptation first by the authorities and then by the public, Uh, remarkable. And in general, I find that the knowledge and familiarity of common people with judicial practices and law to be truly remarkable. So some of my um, self accusers of witchcraft, they say, according to imperial law, you must do this and you must exercise the duty of your office, which is a legal argument. So my suicidal perpetrators are using legalese,
1: which is quite interesting. Yeah, that is quite, wow. All right. Um, so we have taken up a ton of your time already. We got to got to wrap this up, and it is so fascinating. I want to keep talking about it, but I've got we got to wrap this up. So I basically have like my penultimate question. Mm-hmm. Um, this comes, you know, the, with a question you bring up in your conclusion, mm-hmm. or it comes from your conclusion, which is the discussion of the very few cases of the early nineteenth century when suicide by proxy ends. Right. I mean, what happens there? Okay. So.
0: I find, you know, the, the the last part of the second chapter on Hamburg, you have some of these perpetrators who are now committing suicide by proxy almost as default, where around 1700, the perpetrators explain that, you know, they, they were thinking about killing themselves, and they even tried, and they went to the river, and they were going to jump in and all, but then they're like, wait, wait a minute, we're just... Wait a minute, because I'm putting my soul at risk. And, and so the, they explicitly say that they fear damnation and therefore uh, commit suicide by proxy. By the late uh, 18th century and the early years of the 19th century, the uh, religious justification kind of falls away and the perpetrators themselves. No longer speak of that, but rather uh, Suicide by proxy seems to just have become a script. It has become a cultural convention So should I commit suicide or should I murder a child? You know, these two are then equivalent and the the lack of explicitly religious language um, on the part of the perpetrators we also see that that disappears from the the language of prosecutors who now justify uh, the punishments that they impose by faithfulness to the law. So the, the law, the rule of law, becomes uh, their motivating factor rather than their obligation to um, follow divine law. So that's quite remarkable. Um, and, and we see finally, uh, you know, by uh, the very late 18th century and early 19th century, that, that even common people begin to uh, lose supernatural horror vis-a-vis suicide because I have several people who committed suicide by proxy and then were imprisoned who um, um, then actually commit suicide in prison. So it becomes kind of compatible. It's either you know, six of this and a half a dozen of the other. Um, And then it ultimately stops because as we get into the 19th century, uh, execution rates in general decline dramatically. Um, And we do have an increasing uh, use. I think we have quite a deliberate obfuscation on the part of authorities, even as cases continue to happen, that the authorities sweep the motives under the rug. And I think that this is a preventative measure because they realize the contagious nature of these crimes, so that if they can categorize a perpetrator as mentally ill, then the logic of suicide by proxy is less proliferated. So that, I think, is quite a deliberate attempt to contain uh, the the practice. Um, And it's as if they had forgotten uh, that this had been going on for the past 200 years. but then, ultimately, after it ends, they really do forget. Um, maybe we should talk about this history and memory thing.
1: Yeah, this is one of the things that, as an historian, I find even like also just incredibly interesting. Which is why did I, I didn't know about this? Right. right. This is this is a huge like this really fascinating, relatively common big deal. And his and I have this is when I learned about it was reading your book in preparation for this interview. So, uh, yeah, why are you one of the first scholars to study it? So, um, I think, you know,
0: digging around deeply in the execution ritual, as I did for my first book, as I said, that tipped me off uh, uh, to this practice. But I think, A, there is, as I just described, a deliberate sweeping under the rug for preventative purposes. Mm -hmm. But then, um, there is also... uh, The fact that this is an unpleasant story from the perspective of early 19th century jurists, and particularly the emerging bourgeois reading public, this is not a pleasing story. What Mm -hmm. is pleasing is the Gretchen story in Faust. And you have this innocent maiden who has been, you know, misled by Faust, and then, you know, she is a victim of the prejudices of society and dies as an infanticidal mother, but she Gretchen is a classic victim, right? Um, so that is the, the uh, narrative that emerges in the era of the Sturm and drang which uh, is completely different, obviously, than the narrative you would have about an infanticidal mother in 1720, 1730, you know, or 1750 or something, right? So you've got infanticidal mothers who are victims. You also have all of these women who died um, as witches and they can be recategorized as victims, as uh, Frederick II of Prussia said, who who says, oh, now finally can women can reach peacefully old age without being executed as witches, which means that the enlightened state can congratulate itself upon having overcome the uh, superstitions and barbarity of an earlier age. Uh, Which applies both to the narrative surrounding infanticidal mothers as it applies to the narrative of witchcraft and witches Both of these are victims women as victims make for attractive reading material For a bourgeois audience in the early 19th century women with agency Do not and albeit it's a very self-destructive horrific agency, but agency they have and treachery and intent uh and cunning um and be- because there's a lot of treachery involved you have to get your hands on a child you have to lure the child you know and this is not a story that is palatable and it violates emerging ide- ideology of gender so uh, that's one a uh, huge reason why i think this story and furthermore it's very you know, disturbing to early modern or rather to 19th century uh, scholars and legal authors, jurists, to see the impotency of the state in the earlier period, that no matter what they do, they cannot get a handle on this thing, right? So impotency is something that you would also want to sweep under the rug if you're a 19th century author, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there was that. And then there is also just one other thing that I, you know, should maybe have mentioned there in the conclusion, which is the question of source materials. So when you go digging around in the archive and you look for these cases, the way they were often categorized is they're grouped with under the category of Kinsmont. And so you go to the archive and you look at some 19th century registry of preserved archival uh, sources, and you're going to think, these are cases of neonaticide. And so mm-hmm. you're not even going to go look. But once you look, you will find, uh,
1: as I did. Wow. This, um, th- this is such a great story, Um, you know, when we talk about grad students listening to these, this is such a great way for them to see the interaction, um, you know, of of, of what historians do. And actually, for anyone who's not an historian, for all of you listeners, we're just vaguely interested in how we come up with this. Mm -hmm. But this idea of how much what's left and how you treat it and these interventions from generations of archivists and and like how all of this contributes to what we know about the past.
0: Yes. And then crazy things like in Vienna, um, my major, you know, most criminal records in Vienna have been destroyed because of fascist street fighting in the 1930s. So, you know, that just isn't there. What I do have is this protocol of the confraternity of the dead, uh, which is one of my major sources there. So the interventions of modern political history and how it affects the archival record is also kind of dramatic.
1: Yeah. I mean there was just a random sinkhole that opened and destroyed right. exactly. tons of Bible material that destroyed. This is just not gonna be there for later.
0: Exactly.
1: Uh yeah. That's it. there's a lot there. Um wow, Kathy, thank you so much. What a fascinating, uh fascinating book and what a great talk. This has been yeah. wonderful. All that's right, fun. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right, listeners, once again, this is Suicide by Proxy in Early Modern Germany, Crime, Sin and Salvation. Uh out this year with 2023 with Palgrave Press. There's a link to buy it uh, on our website. So give it a look.
0: Oh, wait, should I tell you about the film?
1: There's a film? Yes, yeah. Oh, tell what? Me about
0: the film. There's a film. So let me get a sh- give a shout out to <laughs> two Austrian filmmakers, Veronika Franz and Severin Fiala, with whom I've been collaborating since 2015 as historical advisor to their forthcoming film uh, Des Teufels Bat, The Devil's Bath, which is based on a composite um, by um, of two actual cases that I provided them with, and they created then a feature-length uh, fictionalized version playing in Upper Austria in the middle of the 18th century, and that is forthcoming in early 2024.
1: That is fantastic. Oh, how fun for you, yeah. too. Yeah, really cool. All right, um I will drop a link to that in the on the website as well. All awesome. right, awesome. <laughs> awesome, great. Thanks, Kathy. Take care. Bye. Bye.